The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is The Law is Good. The Law is Good. This is part two, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. In our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, we've come now to chapter 7, and Paul's explanation of the believer's ongoing relationship to the law of God. Those who have turned from their sin to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have been united together with Christ in the likeness of his death. Our old man has been crucified with him, buried with Jesus Christ in death. That happened so that the body of our sin might be done away with, that the body of our sin might be nailed to the cross, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. In place of that old man now crucified, a new man has been raised in the likeness of his resurrection, raised to walk in newness of life. Now, how was this accomplished? How was this accomplished? According to chapter 6, verse 10, the sacrificial substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ that he died at the cross was a death not simply for sin, but a death to sin, as Paul says, once for all of us. His death in the place of ruined sinners, the just for the unjust, was not only a sacrificial death bearing the penalty for sin that you rightly deserve, but his death was a death to the power of sin that once enslaved you, such that through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, his death to sin has now become our death to sin. Paul therefore says, you are no longer slaves of sin. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed therefore to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he gives us this glorious promise. Sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now think with me, think with me. That means that sin, sin exercised a power over you. Sin, when you were lost, when you were unconverted, sin exerted a dominion over over you, and that dominion was exerted through the law, through the law of God. Before the work of Jesus Christ and his life and death were applied to you through the means of faith, you were under the condemnation of God's law. For as many as of our, are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The law we know has the power or the authority to command. The law also has the authority to condemn. And because you are a natural born sinner, to be under the law is to be under the law's condemnation. To be under the law is to be under the law's curse. A child of wrath. Now, sin exercises its dominion. It exercises its influence through the condemning power of the law. And according to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, sin does this in two primary ways. Follow with me now. Two primary ways. First, sin enslaves you and will eventually kill you by means of the law's condemnation. 
Sin will enslave you and kill you by means of the law's condemnation. Through the law, sin reigns in your mortal body as a harsh and evil slave master. As one born in Adam, with a sin nature fallen and depraved, sin's mastery over you is one of complete dominance. Complete dominance. You present the faculties of your soul, your heart, your mind, your strength, the members of your body. You present your faculties as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. You sin in thought. You sin in word. You sin in deed. Your desires are sinful. Your affections are sinful. Your emotions are sinful. Imaginations are sinful. Sin's dominance over you is ultimately complete. Sin's dominance over you culminates in your death and then in your judgment. That dominance exercised through the condemning power of the law. But secondly, secondly, sin enslaves you by means of the law's provocation. By means of the law's provocation. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 5, that when we were in the flesh, sinful passions were aroused by the law and were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. The law aroused or aggravated sinful passions. We were dominated by sinful passions when we were lost. Dominated by sinful appetites, sinful lusts. And those sinful appetites, those lusts, provoked by the law. The law says, yes, sin is stirred up within you to say no. The law says, no, sin rises (laughs) to say yes. Sin in you aroused by the law. Now, brother, sister, your death to sin then, your death to the condemning power of the law in union with Jesus Christ, who has paid its penalty, who has satisfied its demands, your death to sin means that the law then no longer has any jurisdiction by which it may condemn you as a sinner. The law, therefore, has no jurisdiction to condemn you as a sinner. You have died to sin. Paul says you have died to the law. Sin, through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ to sin once for all, sin has lost the power that it once exercised over you. That power exercised through the condemning authority of the law, sin now has lost the power that it once exerted over you. Because you are no longer under law, you are under the loving operations of his superabounding grace. Now, furthermore, furthermore, a heart of flesh, having replaced that heart of stone, the spirit of the living God having taken up residence within you, you're no longer enslaved to those sinful passions that are aroused by the law. But, chapter 7, verse 6, but... Now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. You have died to the law, that you may be married to another, freed from your debt to the law, freed from your obligation to the law, and brought now into everlasting covenant with the one who has redeemed you by his blood. Married to Christ. Now, those are glorious truths. Absolutely glorious truth and so helpful in our Christian walk, so helpful in our battle against sin. But it's all this talk about the law now. It's all this talk about the law, and in particular the law's relationship to our sin and condemnation that would arouse the angst of an imaginary interlocutor, an imaginary objector, one who would rise up and say, sounds like Paul has painted himself into a corner. 
The only reasonable conclusion that we can draw from the argument that Paul has raised is that the law then is the ultimate cause or reason for our sin. The law itself is then evil. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Isn't it true that the law then is sin? For some, it would seem like the inevitable conclusion to Paul's case. It's in the context of this faulty conclusion then that Paul recognizes the need to come to the defense of God's good and holy law. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? The thought is absurd to the Apostle Paul. He answers in the strongest possible negation, certainly not, literally may it never be, God forbid. On the contrary, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. Now, the defense of the law that Paul uh, undertakes here in Romans chapter 7 is intensely personal uh, to the Apostle Paul. You notice in verse 7, a shift to frequent use now of first-person pronouns, I, me, and my. And not only that, not only is it intensely personal to Paul in that way, but Paul begins his defense, verses 7 through 13, by appealing to his own experience, his own experience as an unconverted sinner. He's going to use his own experience to make his case. He's going to follow that in verse 14. We'll get there next week, Lord willing, with his personal experience as a mature Christian. First, verses 7 through 13, and his experience as an unconverted man. Then his personal experience, beginning in verse 14, as a mature Christian, all talking about unpacking the relationship, the Christian's ongoing relationship to the law of God. Now, in arguing from his own experience, Paul is saying to us, this is the experience of all of us. In arguing from his own experience, this is the experience of us all. Christian, consider your own experience, and you'll know that what Paul's saying here is true. Now, in consideration of our text last week, we saw first that the law is good because the law exposes sin. The law is good because the law exposes sin. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law exposes sin. I would, have not, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. In verse 7, notice Paul's use of past tense verbs. You guys study in Greek, it's an aorist. I would not have known unless the law had said, past tense. In other words, Paul is referring to a time in the past, a time in the past when the law was brought to bear on Paul's conscience, and Paul is speaking of a time of the time at his conversion. In particular, when the, the Lord used the 10th commandment to convict him of sin. That law, particularized in commandments, like you shall not covet, informs our God-given conscience. And then the law exposes particular aspects of our sin to our informed conscience. Do you see how it works? right? The law particularized in commandments, a commandment like you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not covet. The law particularized in commandments informs your God-given conscience. And then the law exposes your God-given conscience to the confrontation of the law exposes particular aspects of your sin to your conscience under the law. Our conscience then accuses 
or else excuses, as Paul says, based on our understanding of the law. Conviction was first aroused in the heart of Paul by the means of the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. And for example, when the instrumentality of the law was then applied to the heart, the mind, the conduct of Paul, the sin of covetousness was exposed. The law exposes our sin. And that law is our tutor to drive us fleeing to Christ. When the law, which is holy, just, and good, is brought to bear upon our conscience, brought to bear upon our conduct, brought to bear upon our thoughts, when that law is brought to bear upon our sin, our conscience accuses And the law then becomes our tutor to drive us to Christ. Secondly, secondly, the law is good because the law provokes sin. The law is good because the law provokes sin. It sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? The law is good because it provokes sin. Now follow Paul's train of thought. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Apart from the law, sin was dead, and I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Paul said, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But instead of yielding to the law, think, instead of yielding to the law, my indwelling sin, your indwelling sin, that that other principle that Paul says we find at work in our members and the faculties of our soul, instead of yielding to the law, that principle of sin actually used or worked through that very commandment to provoke within Paul all manner of coveting, all manner of concupiscence, evil desire. has the very opposite effect that it should, Right? Our indwelling sin, instead of yielding to the law's commands, instead of yielding to the law, which is holy, just, and good, my indwelling sin, your indwelling sin, actually works through the law to produce exactly what the law is intended to restrain. There was a time once, Paul said, before the law came, when sin, by all outward appearances, was as good as dead to me. Paul was somewhat unaware. As far as his conscience was concerned, sin had been concealed, as it were, from his conscience. And Paul said, I appeared to be alive in ignorant bliss. But that is far from the truth about our fallen condition, isn't it? Far from the truth. The sinner is a cesspool of iniquity. We may be, to some degree, unaware of sin's deadly work, but sin is nevertheless at work in our members. Sin is nevertheless at work, hard at work in the faculties of your soul, producing lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, bearing its bitter fruit to death. Sin is at work in you. Sin, that principle, is at work in your members. And as long as our conscience lies uninformed, as long as our conscience lies unchallenged by the law, sin operates, as it were, under a shroud of darkness. Sin operates, as it were, under the cover of night. Now, our conscience is never fully turned off. You don't switch your conscience entirely into the off position. We are never without the light of the law, the work of the law written upon our heart. But sinners, what do they do? 
with the light of truth. What do they do with the light of the law? They suppress that truth in their unrighteousness. They suppress the truth of God willfully, brazenly. They suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. They willfully conceal their conscience from the light of the law and sin wreaks havoc in the darkness. Do you see? Sin wreaks havoc in the soul by exploiting our willful blindness. Sin wreaks havoc in your soul by exploiting your willful deafness. You have shut eyes, stopped ears to the law of God, to the word of God, and sin is wreaking havoc in your soul, wreaking havoc in your members. If not exposed by the light of the law, the suppressed conscience of the unbeliever is rarely, if ever, aroused to a state of alarm over sin. Unless exposed by the searing spotlight of God's law, which is holy, just, and good, the sinner may never come to an understanding or awareness of their own sinfulness against God. You see? Never aroused to a state of alarm, to a state of urgency, to a state of need because of sin. Sin continues to operate unchecked in the shadows. We need the preaching of God's law. Do you see? How many times today do we see churches abandon the preaching of God's law? God's law has fallen into uh, disrepute, as it were, in our generation. We don't think the preaching of the law is necessary. The preaching of the law is absolutely necessary to confront sinners in their sin, to drag the concealed sin, the concealed conscience into the light and expose it to the law of God that the work might begin in the heart that would lead the sinner to flee to Jesus Christ. Sin is powerfully active. You may not be aware of that. It may not always be impressed upon you. Sin is powerfully active. But to the unconverted man, it appears as though sin were dead. Paul said sin was dead before the law. Even though it's active, it appears as though it's dead. It appears as though he himself, Paul would say, was alive. You may think of yourself, if you've never turned from sin to put your faith and trust in Christ, you may think there's no problem with you. What's all the fuss about? How many times have you preached the gospel to somebody at the door, for example? It's like, why are you making such a big deal of the law? Jesus Christ has saved me from the... They have no conviction whatsoever. Haven't you broken this sin? No. This sin? No. Or this law? No. I was once uh, witnessing with a brother. We uh, knocked on the door of a person who no habla inglés, and my brother spoke Spanish. And I don't remember, or I, don't, I didn't understand a single thing about that conversation, hardly a word, except for the fact when the brother was obviously taking her through the law, every single law was nunca, nunca, nunca. (laughs) In other words, have you broken this law? No, never. Have you broken this law? No, never. (laughs) In other words, has never had her conscience exposed and informed by the law, oblivious to sin. It were it was as though sin were dead and she were alive in blissful ignorance. Listen, you'll follow that primrose path of blissful ignorance all the way to hell unless God is gracious to open your eyes and unstop your deaf ears. His conscience, Paul's conscience suppressed and unable to perceive the fullness of sin's deadly work, his conscience rendered impotent, unable to shout 
in accusation against the sinner's transgression of God's law. That's the state of the unconverted man apart from God's grace and salvation. It's when we are confronted with a moral challenge through the law of God and the weight of the law is brought to bear upon our conscience, it's then that the conflict begins, right? When the commandment came, verse 9, when the commandment came, sin revived, it was dragged kicking and screaming into the light, and I died. Paul became conscious of his true spiritual condition. His eyes opened to the truth. His ears now opened to the truth. Paul became conscious. At the preaching of the law, Paul became conscious of his true spiritual condition. Apart from the preaching of the law, Paul may have remained in deception. Apart from the grace of God through the preaching of the law, Paul may have remained deceived. How important is it that we preach the law of God? It is necessary to preach the law. It's through the commandment, through the law, which is holy, just, and good, that we see sin as exceedingly sinful. It's in the light of the law that we see our great and desperate need for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the law is good because it provokes sin. Do you see? The law is good because it drags that sin out into the light so that we can see it as exceedingly sinful. Now that then brings us to the third point on your notes. The law is good. The law is good because the law brings death. Now again, that's, that sounds counterintuitive, but you're going to see the truth of that statement in Paul's argument. Verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Paul makes reference in verse 10 to the original intention of the law. The law was never intended to give occasion to sin. Are you kidding, right? Never intended to give occasion to sin. The law was never intended to provoke within us some rebellious response. Law was never intended to do that. The purpose of the law in man's original estate, as Dr. Murray describes, was not to give occasion to sin, but to direct and regulate man's life in the path of righteousness, and therefore to guard and to promote life. The law's original intention was to guard and to promote life. Now, do our sin, however, do our sin, that same law, good in its original purpose of promoting life, that same law now produces death. The same law brings forth death. Does the fact that the law now brings forth death, does that somehow impeach the character of the law? No. Does that somehow make the law evil or make the law sin? No. Far from it. Now, Paul explains the cause first, and then Paul draws his conclusion. First, the cause, verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Notice the antagonism that's emphasized in the text of fallen man against the law. Antagonism against the law. Our own sin takes opportunity 
takes occasion. My own sin takes advantage of the law to deceive me. How antagonistic are we against the law of God? My own sin takes advantage of the law to deceive me. My own sin takes the very law which was graven upon our heart, graven upon the heart of man, and intended by God to vanquish any notion of evil desire. My own sin takes that law and makes that same law an occasion for provoking within me all manner of evil desire. You see the the twist in that? The law originally given to vanquish any notion of evil desire, my own sin takes that law and provokes within me the very thing that the law was intended to restrain. And the more aware that we then become of the law's just demands, the more the light of the law shines upon our conscience, the more that Paul relied upon the law as a means to life, verse 10, the more that sin through the law produced precisely the opposite, the more that sin brought forth death. The more that Paul looked into the law as a path to life, the more the law was found to bring forth death. Now, the cause of that dissonance is not the law. That's Paul's point. The cause of that is attributed to the deceitfulness of sin. Robert Martin refers to the deceitfulness of sin on this point. The deceitfulness of sin is consisting in this. Sin is deceitful in that it turned the law in which I ought to have found a guide to righteousness In my case, it turned the law into a means of furthering unrighteousness. That's the way in which sin here is deceitful. Turned the law, which should have been a guide to righteousness, turned the law into a means of furthering unrighteousness. Rightly has it been remarked that in the conduct of sin, as Paul describes it here in this verse, there is an allusion in the very nature of the case to the serpent in paradise. Sin enter the world and death through sin. The law is holy, just, and good. Sin is the perpetrator. The law becomes simply the instrumentality through which sin works, through which sin carries out its deadly work. Verse 11, sin taking occasion by the commandment or taking advantage of the law deceived me and by the commandment sin killed me. That's the cause. Paul then draws his conclusion. Verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. Now, again, Paul's conclusion may appear at first sight to be counterintuitive. We might have expected to hear, nevertheless, the law is holy, right? Nevertheless, although law brings forth death, nevertheless, the law is holy or Although the law provides the occasion for sin, nevertheless, the law is holy. We might have expected Paul to say that. It's not what Paul says. It's not how we're to understand the relationship between verse 12 and verse 11. It is sin that deceives. It's sin that kills. It's our own indwelling sin, our own remaining corruption that hijacks the law. The law then is vindicated. Do you see? The law is vindicated. The law is just in its condemnation. David prayed 
in Psalm 51.3. David prayed this to the Lord. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. God speaks and judges in accord with his law. God speaks and judges through the law. His law is a transcript of God's own holy, just, and righteous character. The law is a transcript of his character. His law is just because God is just. And Paul vindicates God's law as blameless when he speaks, just when he judges. Law of God is holy. When describing the law in verse 12 as holy, Paul is saying that the law is the antithesis of sin. The objector has come along and say, and making the case or attempting to make the case that based upon what Paul has said, that the law is sin. Is the law sin? Paul says, absolutely not. The law is holy. The antithesis is sin. Holy is the strongest possible opposition to the original question posed in verse 7. What's the strongest possible thing that we can say about the law to negate the objection or the question raised in verse 7? Is the law sin? No, absolutely not. The thought is absurd. The law is holy. Do you see? A transcript of the perfect character of God. The law is an expression of the perfect will of God. The commandment in verse 12 refers to every part of God's law. The law is holy and the commandment, holy, just, and good. The commandment, every part of God's law of particular concern in our context is the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. The law is holy and that commandment, you shall not covet, is holy, just, and good. The commandment refers to all of them. All of the law particularized in commandments. The law in every part is holy, just, and good. It was in the, the garden that Satan deceived Eve into believing God, that God was unjust or unrighteous toward her in withholding something from her that was good. She began to think under the deception of the serpent, right? Under the deception of the Satan, she became deceived and began to think that God was withholding something from her that was good. She looked upon that which God had forbidden and she saw, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, she saw that the tree was good for food. The tree, the fruit, was pleasant to the eyes. And it was a tree desirable to make one wise. And believing that that was good and God's law was in fact unjust, she took of the fruit and ate. Do you see? It's the same problem in Eve, rather than looking upon the law of God as just, rather than looking upon the law of God as being for her good, intended for her good, she now looked upon the law of God as somehow unjust, unfair, unrighteous. And Eve, deceived by the serpent, now ate. Drawn away by her own desires and enticed, James chapter 1, Distracted, drawn away by her own desires, enticed, Eve's desire conceived and gave birth to sin. 
Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, produced in Eve the evil desire or the evil lust of covetousness, of envy, of greed, of idolatry. And Eve ate the fruit. The law of God is just. The law of God is holy, just, and good. It's righteous in what it demands. It's when we sin that we declare it to be unrighteous. Our sin takes advantage by the law, through the commandment, to stir up within us or to arouse within us all manner of evil desire. The law of God is also just and righteous in its judgments. The law of God is righteous. The law of God is just, holy, and good in its judgment of death and hell upon all those who would fail to keep its righteous requirements. In other words, no one's going to be able to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and make a case that somehow the law of God was unfair to me or make a case that somehow my treatment under the law is unjust. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And finally, Paul says that the law is good. The law is holy, the law is just, and the law is good. Good in the purpose for which it was given. Good in rightly and necessarily regulating the relationship between creator and creature. Good in prescribing for man what is to his happiness and joy. Good in promoting his highest well-being. Mention the law today, and most people will say that you smack of legalism. (laughs) If you preach the law of God, you're going to be accused of being a legalist. That the law of God is somehow unfair or unrighteously applied to man because we are free to do as we please. In some would say in Jesus Christ, right? It's It's a presumption a faulty presumption that many make. Because of Jesus Christ, I'm free to live as I please. I'm free to do as I please. Apart from Jesus Christ, that's the way that lost people live. They believe themselves to be autonomous and free to live as they please. But the law of God prescribes that which is for our ultimate joy. The law prescribes that which is for our ultimate good, our ultimate well-being. And what do we do in our sin? Deceived by our sin, that law, which was holy, just, and good, actually stirs up within us all manner of evil desire, all manner of wickedness, all manner of those things which, is for, which are for our harm, and leads us along a primrose path to death. And you'll if you don't turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you'll walk that path all the way to your death, imagining somehow that it's all going to work out for your good in the end. Until that time that you are made to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's those who are in hell who are crying out, Lord, Lord! Did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not go to church on Sundays? Did I not do those things for you? And yet they're shocked, astonished that they're in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord, all of these synonyms for the law of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, another word for the law of God. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You legalist. So in review, the law is good in that one, it exposes sin. The law is good, two, in that it provokes sin. And the law is good, three, that it brings forth death. Finally, finally, the law is good in that the law magnifies sin. The law magnifies sin. Paul is set upon a course to vindicate the law of God. And his vindication of the law comes to a conclusion here with verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Because the law brings forth death, has that which is good become death to me? Paul says, certainly not. Certainly not. The cause of your death, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, you face physical death and you face what the Bible calls second death, an eternal death, a death which will hold you in its grip for all eternity, a death in which the smoke of your torment rises forever and ever. You have no rest day or night. The cause of that death is not the holy, just, and good law of God that which is true and righteous altogether. The law of God is unimpeachable. The law of God is unassailable. The law of God is perfect. But rather, verse 13, sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. It's not the law of God that should be under the foolish scrutiny of ignorant men. It's not the law of God that should be the object of this foolish objection, but rather, it's our own indwelling sin that is the source of all this evil. Your own remaining corruption that is the source of all the evil that we see. All the evil in our world today is due sin, death. You want to have proof that sin is in the world and that God judges sin, the proof of that is unless the Lord returns, every one of you is going to die. Every one of you is going to die. Number your days and gain a heart of wisdom. Unless you turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you will perish. And where the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, Where the wrath of God is revealed, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in the gospel as a free gift to those who will put their faith and trust in him. You can be justified. 
You can be reconciled to God. You can have peace with God. You can have heaven when you die. Why will you persist in sin? Sin is killing you. Do you see? The law is not sinful. Your sin is exceedingly sinful. In fact, my own corruption, my own indwelling sin hijacks what is good. It takes advantage of what is good to deceive me and through what is good, it kills me. And all for a purpose. Paul states the purpose in verse 13. All for the purpose that it would be exposed as the wicked, vile, offensive, obscene, perverted thing that it is. Through the instrumentality of the commandment, sin might be seen for the foul obscenity that it truly is. That sin might manifest its exceeding sinfulness. Is the law sin? What a stupid thing to think. What a foolish notion. What an absurd thought. That notion couldn't be any further from the truth. They're on polar opposites. The real issue that we have to contend with is our own indwelling sin, our own remaining corruption. The real issue that you and I have to deal with is the deceitful and deadly perversity of our own sin. And the only way that you're going to deal effectively with that is by fleeing to the Lord Jesus Christ, by applying the balm of the gospel. That perversity within us works death through that which is good turning that which is good into an instrument of death. The law exposes our sin. The law provokes or aggravates our desires for sin. The law righteously brings forth its judgment of death. The law magnifies the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The law is not sinful. The law is not sinful. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. What then is the purpose or the function then of the law? What's the purpose? There are many who have accused Paul that his preaching of the gospel, his preaching of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, rendered the law of God useless. If we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, not according to our works, then what good, what use is the law? Right? What, law what purpose does the law serve? The law is not only useless, but because sin hijacks the law and brings forth death, the law is actually evil. Some foolish objectors might say. So what is the purpose of the law? Turn with me to Galatians chapter three. A few pages to the right. Galatians chapter three. And look there at verse 19. Galatians chapter three, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? See the connection to Romans chapter 7, don't you? What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. It's essentially what Paul is saying there in Romans chapter 7. The law was added so that we might so that it might be made manifest the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The law was added because of transgressions until the seed. Your Bible may have a capital S there. Who is that? Jesus Christ, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made, the promise of the new covenant. 
And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. A mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? May it never be. Absolutely not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Here's the purpose. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given, might be given to those who believe. It's amazing to me that we preach texts like this. We work verse by verse through books of the Bible. So for those of you who have been with us for uh, some time, for a while, <laughs> we went through uh, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, and the indictment, the universal indictment of all men under sin. We spent a considerable amount of, it takes us a little while to work through these passages. <laughs> we spent a considerable amount of time in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, dealing with the reality of sin and the universal indictment of all men under the condemnation of the law. And in all of that, in all of that, the purpose for why Paul would spend such what many would think is an inordinate amount of time talking about the law of God and talking about our sin, the reason for that is because we're so hard-hearted and we need to see our own sinfulness so that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ might be displayed against the black backdrop of my own heart so that I would come to see my need. Now that's gracious, brother. That's gracious, sister. That's the goodness of God to condescend and to show me my own sin that I might long for Jesus Christ, that I might see him as precious, that I might flee to him for salvation, for him to take my penalty for me so that I don't have to perish. I might flee through the gospel to Jesus Christ. That's gracious. That's gracious. And yet time and time and time again, when people come to a church like this, people will say, all I hear is law. I don't hear gospel. This is all gospel. This is the grace of God. And you need to hear. You need, this is not, uh, this is often not what you want to hear. But this is what you and I need to hear, right? Why would Paul spend such this amount of time now into Romans 6 and now into Romans 7 dealing with our own indwelling sin, dealing with our own corruption? Why? Because you have indwelling sin and you are corrupt in your heart. You need salvation. And we need, those of you who have turned to Christ in faith, need to be reminded. We need strength in our battle against sin. We need our faith in him emboldened, informed. We need to see sin as exceedingly sinful so that we might continue to turn from sin and trust in him. Verse 23, before faith came, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept, preserved for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. That word uh, carries the sense not just of a, 
teacher, like we would think of as tutor on our own day, but as disciplinarian. That's, that, that tutor uh, carries a steel ruler and she'll rack your knuckles with it when you get out of line, right? That's what that tutor is, right? That's the way the law is described. The law was our tutor, our pedagogos, our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Isn't the law good? And then it reflects the character of God, reveals to us our own sinfulness that we might embrace Jesus Christ in faith and be saved. Drives us to Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith. After faith has come, no longer need a tutor. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. And the law becomes to us a guide, not our, our, our condemning judge. The law becomes our guide, our good and just guide to lead us in living the Christian life. There is a prevalence among professing churches in our day to apply the gospel without first exposing the festering wound of sin. Somehow the festering wound of sin just needs to be covered over, pushed aside, kept in the darkness. And we'll talk about the things that we want to talk about. Any mention of the law smacks of legalism. Any application of the law only rubs the conscience raw, or wounds a fragile conscience. But let me ask you the question that Paul started off with. Do you see, do you see in your own experience what Paul's talking about in our text. Do you see, in the experience of Paul, do you see your own experience? The preaching of the law is necessary in the preaching of the gospel. Praise God for his law. It is holy, it is just, and it is good. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful to you for your law. Grateful that it is holy and just and good. Grateful, Lord, for what the law communicates to us about who you are. Grateful, Lord, for what the law communicates to us about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and endured on our behalf. We're grateful to you, Lord, for the law, and grateful to you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that in the searing, hot spotlight of the law, we can see our own sinfulness for what it is, We can glimpse ourselves more the way that you see us apart from Jesus Christ and that in grace and in the application of your mercy to us, it sends us fleeing to Jesus Christ in faith. We see nothing redeemable within us, nothing good in us that is within our flesh, but we see Jesus. He has become to us righteousness and wisdom and we lord cling to jesus christ in faith enduring lord in faith the power that your spirit supplies because lord he has become to us salvation we thank you lord for the gospel thank you for stooping to reveal our sin that we might be redeemed, reconciled to you through him. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.